Philippians 1, verse 3. And if you would please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's pray this morning. Dear Lord, our Father, God, we come this morning, Lord, in worship and praise of you, Lord, for your goodness, your grace, your salvation, Lord, that you have given to us, God. God, I pray this morning as we look at these last couple verses of this passage of this uh, part of Philippians where Paul is proclaiming to the church of his affection, his love, his deep connection to the church, Lord, that, that we would not only see Paul as an example of joy, Lord, that, that we would crave and desire that joy also, that it would motivate us, Lord, motivate us to proclaim the gospel to those that uh, are lost. So God, I pray this morning as we uh, go through these passages, as we talk about evangelism, as we, we talk about the gospel, Lord, that you would, would give us encouragement and a desire, Lord, to be a part of what you are doing. In your son's name, amen. amen. You may be seated. Today we're going to be uh, finishing up this first part the book of Philippians, which is really Paul's personal greeting. He has kind of a, a standard greeting in the beginning two verses, and then he has this personal greeting where he writes about his joy, his love, and his gratitude for this church in Philippi. Uh, he wanted the church to know, this church that he loved, he wanted them to know that, that despite his circumstances, despite being in prison in Rome, he was joy-filled. And a large reason for that joy was his relationship with this church itself. Therefore, in Philippians 1, 3 through 8, Paul really kind of opens up his heart, and he shows us, and he shows this church a, a number of things that really just added to his joy as a believer. And I have said this a number of times as we've been walking through these few verses, that, that this is really good news for us as believers, because God, or Paul is giving us an example of joy, an example that we can follow, an example that we can learn from. Uh, he's an example of joy, and, and we have learned already that, that Paul's joy spans from past, present, to future. Uh, two weeks ago, we learned or saw that Paul purposefully chose, he, he kept his thoughts captive uh, about the past. He chose to dwell on the good in people and, and not the bad. He believed the best in people. He didn't, he didn't let past offenses or past 
hurts consume him or rob him of his joy. We also learn that Paul found joy in his present partnership within the gospel, that with the Philippian church, that, that he had a present fellowship in the gospel that produced joy in Paul's life. And finally, last week, we learned that Paul had a joy-filled confidence about the future. Verse 6 says this, I am sure, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And I as I said last week, this, this is the most important aspect of Paul's joy. In fact, verse 6 is the, the linchpin that kind of holds this whole passage together. Uh, if Paul didn't have a confidence about the future, it wouldn't matter how he thought about the past. If he didn't have a confidence about the future, it, it wouldn't matter what he did in the present. If he wasn't absolutely sure about the future, his joy would be unfounded and shallow. But Paul was sure. He was confident. Confident about the future because God is sovereign. And he knew that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's Romans eight twenty-eight. Therefore, in verse 6, he writes this, I am sure... I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul was confident. He was confident that what God began, he would finish. That what God started, he would complete, because salvation belongs to the Lord. Meaning, there was nothing for him to worry about. When it came to the the church at Philippi, ultimately they were in God's hands, and that brought Paul peace and joy while he was stuck being arrested in house arrest. But with this knowledge comes a question, and it's a question you may have asked yourself last week, and it's an important question to ask. If God is completely sovereign, then... Why do anything at all? If, if God's completely sovereign over everything, then why do anything at all? Right? If, if Paul knew and had confidence and was sure that, that everything was in God's hands, that, that God is sovereign or in control of everything, then why should Paul do anything? In other words, if everything is already determined by God's sovereign purposes predestined by the will of God, then what's the point of being faithful? What's the point of evangelizing? Remember, Paul's in prison for the sake of the gospel. He's in prison for the sake of the gospel. He he was so zealous about taking the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to the nations, so much so that, that Paul was arrested for his efforts He was often beaten, he was mocked, he was ran out of city after city after city, and eventually he'll lose his life for the gospel. But why? Why was Paul so determined to share the gospel if everything was already predestined, predetermined? Let me uh, just show you something that I think is interesting, and it's one of the reasons I started thinking about this. Look at verse 6 again, let me just read it. Verse 6 says this, And I am sure, confident, I am sure of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's God's sovereignty. God is working. He who began a good work in you, he who chose you, predestined you, brought spiritual life to you, granted you repentance and faith, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, meaning all the glory goes to God from beginning to end. Again, verse 6, we see God's sovereignty. He's the one acting in verse 6, but look at verse 5. Paul had joy in verse 5 because of what? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Who's acting in verse 5? Paul and the church. They are partnering for the sake of the gospel. So just think about this for a second. Verse 5, Paul and the church are acting, partnering for the sake of the gospel. Verse 6, God is acting. He who began a a good work in you will bring it to completion. Now look at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Again, just like verse 5, we see the church and Paul partnering for the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So verse 5, we see man's action of partnering for the sake of the gospel. Verse 6 we see God's complete sovereignty over salvation. In verse 7, once again, we see man's responsibility to the gospel. So what is it? Has man been given the responsibility to evangelize, to proclaim the gospel, or is God completely sovereign over salvation? You know what the answer is? Yes. <laughs> yes. God has given us the responsibility to evangelize. And yet, at the same exact time, God is completely sovereign over who is saved. Man is responsible. God is sovereign. How these two things go together is a mystery. But they do. The Bible teaches them both clearly. But let me say this. One thing is just very clear. God didn't give us the responsibility to evangelize because he needs us to evangelize. God gave us the responsibility to evangelize because he wants us to evangelize. Those are two completely different statements. Listen, God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything. That includes us evangelizing. He does not need us to evangelize because God needs nothing. Turn with me to to Psalm 50 real quick. Psalm 50. We'll be back in Philippians in a bit here, but if you would turn to Psalm 50, we'll start in verse 7. Verse 7 says this, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. 
I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. In other words, Israel's sacrifices that they would bring to the temple to, to, to the Lord, and they would want to give to God, what God was saying is, it's already mine. It's already mine. Everything is mine. Verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. When it comes to our relationship with the Lord, gratitude only goes one way. It only goes one way from us to God. Never the other way around. Verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High, and I call upon uh, me in the day, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. John Piper writes this, What can I give my Maker? If he were hungry, he would not tell me, for the world and all that is in it is his. The birds of the air, the bugs in the field, the cattle on a thousand hills belong to him. Everything that is, is God's. I cannot improve him. I cannot enrich him or add to him. I am utterly and inescapably and always the receiver. I can only thank him. In other words, he is never indebted to us. Turn with me to Acts 17 now. Acts 17. Look at verse 24, Acts 17, verse 24. It says this, uh, God, who made the world... And everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You know, I've said this a number of times in the pulpit, and I'm sure I'll say it a hundred more times, but we can't even make our own hearts beat. We didn't create ourselves. Every breath, every heartbeat, every day, a gift from God. And He doesn't need anything, He doesn't need us. God is completely self sufficient, He doesn't need our help. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He's perfect. He's complete. What could we give him that would improve him? Nothing. He doesn't 
need us, therefore he is self-sufficient. Let me uh, read to you, it's, it's a passage from the, a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's by A.W. Tozer. I've read this passage a number of times. I just think it's so elegantly written, truthful, and, and actually really bold and humbling. So, so let me just read it. A.W. Tozer writes this on the sufficiency of God. He says, to admit the existence of a need in God is to admit incompleteness in the divine being. Need is a creature word and cannot be spoken of the Creator. God has a voluntary relationship to everything He has made, but He has no necessary relationship to anything outside of Himself. His interest in in His creation arises from His sovereign good pleasure, not from any need the creation can supply, nor from any completeness it can bring to Him. Almighty God, just because he is almighty, needs no support. The picture of a nervous God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one. Yet if we look at the popular conception of God today, that is precisely what we see. 20th century Christianity has put God on charity. In other words, There's a need that God has. He's on charity. He needs us. He needs our help to to complete what he's trying to do. Tozer keeps going. He says this, So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to God. But the truth is that God is no greater from our being, nor would he be lesser if we did not exist. The fact that we do exist is altogether of God's free determination, not by divine necessity. Probably the hardest thought of us all for our natural egotism to entertain is that God does not need our help. We commonly characterize him as a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father hurrying about seeking help to carry out his compassionate plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. But the God who worketh all things together surely needs no help and no helpers. Too many mission, missionary appeals are based upon this supposed frustration of God Almighty. An effective speaker can easily excite pity in his hearers, not only for the heathen, but also for the God who has tried so hard and so long to save them and has failed for want of support. I fear that thousands of younger persons enter into Christian ministry from no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into. Uh, Let me just be clear. This supposed frustrated God of popular Christianity is not the God of the Bible. The almighty, powerful, sovereign, supreme God of Scripture does not need you, and he does not need me. All the dependence goes from man to God, not the other way around, ever. This still leaves us with the question, why evangelize then? Why evangelize? 
If God doesn't need us to evangelize, if God is completely sovereign over salvation from beginning to end, as Philippians 1, 6 makes so clear, if, if man has been chosen from eternity past, predestined, as, as uh, Ephesians 1 makes so clear, then why evangelize? Well, I think the answer is actually pretty simple. God doesn't need us to evangelize. We get to evangelize. It's a gift to us. It's a gift. What do I mean by it's a gift? Well, if you would turn with me now to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. We're starting in verse 1. Acts chapter 10, verse 1, it says this, At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devoted man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now, this is, uh, Cornelius is just like Lydia in in Acts 16. We talked about her a few weeks ago. Uh, Cornelius was a God-fearer. That's a title for someone. It it means a Gentile man, not a Jewish man, but a Gentile man who believes in the Old Testament. He he worshiped the Old Testament God, but but wasn't a Christian. He didn't didn't know about Jesus, or at least the good news of Jesus, the gospel. He needed to hear the gospel. So look at verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly, now take note of that, He saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, this is the angel, Your prayers and your alms have extended as a memorial before God, and and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So let me just again, paint this picture. This angel comes in a vision and, and, and is talking, a clear vision, talking to Cornelius, and, and he gives Cornelius clear and specific instructions, not just to, to send people uh, to get Peter, but where he's at, what house he's in. Verse 7. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of uh, the, his servants, a devoted soldier from among those who attended him, and, and having having uh, related everything to them, he tells them the same things the angels has told, told him. He, he sent them to Joppa. Now, again, this angel says, go and find Peter, and gives him specific instructions. Now, if you know this story, uh, let me just ask this question. Why did God send Cornelius to Peter? Why, why go get Peter? Why find Peter? So that Peter could come and share the gospel, right? Well, here's my question. Couldn't have the angel just share the gospel with Cornelius? I mean, think about that for a second. Yes. He, he, he spoke clearly in a vision to Cornelius. He could have easily shared the gospel with Cornelius. Did God need Peter to go and share the gospel then? No. Listen. God can do anything. 
He can do any. That's what, what, what we mean by all-powerful. He can do anything. The, the angel who spoke clearly in a clear vision could have easily shared the gospel with Cornelius. In fact, God could have sent a talking donkey to Cornelius with the gospel message like he did in the Old Testament in Numbers. In fact, even crazier than that, Luke 19 verse 40 tells us that he could have the stones cry out the gospel. He could do anything. He didn't need Peter. Then why use Peter? Skip down to verse 33. Peter's servants, I'm giving you just kind of quick overview. Let me just say this. One of the reasons this is such a long story is because it's an important one, but let me give you kind of the details. Cornelius' servants find Peter. They bring him back to Cornelius, and uh, Cornelius is there just ready to hear what Peter has to say because of this angel telling him to find Peter, and he he brings all of his relatives and friends to come and listen to Peter, and and that's where we're at. Verse 33, it says this, so I sent for you, Peter, at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. The verse 34, it says this, is this just so important? So Peter opened his mouth. Listen, you can't share the gospel without opening your mouth. It's a message. You have to proclaim it. Peter opened his mouth to share the gospel, and he does this in verse 34 all the way through verse 43. If you would, just look at verse 43. He's explained the gospel, and then he says this, verse 43. Peter's telling all the people there, to to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, that's Jesus, receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. At this point, he he shared the gospel. Before he could say anything else, and you know Peter, he wants to say as much as he can. Verse 44, it says this, while Peter was still saying these things, the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. The Jews were amazed because it was so obvious that these Gentiles were actually saved. Verse 46, for, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and exalting God. Then, then Peter declared, can, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then he asked them, they asked him to remain for some days. Now here's the point. God didn't need Peter to share the gospel. God wanted Peter to share the gospel. Now, I can think of three reasons. I'm sure there's more than three, but three reasons why he wanted Peter to share the gospel. The first one is clear in the book of Acts that he was building the church, building up the church at this point, right? The church was mostly Jews, and the Christian Jews needed to know that Gentiles could be saved also, that the gospel message was to go to the nations, so that's the first reason. The second reason is, is Peter himself. God was, was growing Peter as a leader of the church, as an apostle. Peter even needed to know that the gospel was for the nations, not just the Jewish people. But there's a third reason, and this is the one I want to highlight. 
God used Peter to share the gospel for his joy. Did you hear that? Peter got, he got to be the messenger of good news. It's a privilege. Look at verse 45 again. It said this, and, and the believers, the Jewish believers from among the circumcised who, who come with Peter, Peter and his friends that were, that were Christians, were amazed. In other words, they were in awe of what was happening. They were joy-filled. Look at the end of verse 48. It says this. It's simple. It just says they remained for some days. And, and I just want you to think, what, what do you think they were doing those days? My, my guess is celebrating Worshiping, praising God, joyfully praising the Lord, rejoicing together with great joy for what God was doing. God didn't need Peter to share the gospel. That's ridiculous. Peter got to share the gospel. It was a privilege. It was, it was to Peter's joy. It was grace on God's part for Peter to be able to share the gospel. Listen, when Peter shared the gospel message and all those people were saved, they, they praised God. You know why? Because God got all the glory from beginning to end of their salvation. They praised God, but guess what? Peter got to share in the joy. He got to share in the joy. Isaiah 52, 7 says this, How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. It's a privilege. It's a joy. We, we just need to change our perspective on evangelism. We need to change our perspective on evangelism. God doesn't need you to evangelize. He doesn't need you to evangelize. You get to evangelize. Think about the angel for a second. The angel in the vision with Cornelius. I'm guessing he would have loved to tell Cornelius about Jesus. It would have been to his joy to, to tell Cornelius about Jesus and the cross and what he did for him. But God saved that privilege for Peter, not the angel. Peter got the privilege. Peter got the joy, and I'm guessing too, this is just another guess, this is not in scripture, but, but I'm sure of this. It bonded Peter and Cornelius together in love. Because that day, Cornelius became Peter's brother in Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus promised Peter in the Gospels. Just listen to Mark 10, verse 28. Peter says this. Peter began to, to say to him, to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. This is a statement, but really it's more of a question. Peter, maybe an accusation. Peter is asking Jesus. He's saying, hey, we have left everything. What, what is in it for us? What, what do we get out of this, Jesus? And, and I think a lot of us would probably answer in our heads, well, well, it's your duty, Peter. Just don't think about yourself. You're being so selfish. But that's not how Jesus answers. This is what he says. Jesus said, 
Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. Guess who one of those brothers became? One of the hundredfold. Cornelius. Peter gained Cornelius as a brother because of the gospel. I'm guessing that there is a bond between Peter and Cornelius, a, a love that, that Peter had for Cornelius. I mean, you can kind of see it in the passage. And I'm also guessing Cornelius had a love for Peter, the one that brought the good news. I mean, how beautiful are, are the feet of, of those that bring good news. Peter gained a brother, but, but more than that, a brother in Christ. Peter received a hundredfold brothers and sisters and mothers and children because of the gospel. Because of the gospel. Again, God didn't need Peter to share the gospel. Cornelius was chosen before the foundations of the world. Peter got to share the gospel. He got to share the gospel. He got to be a part of what God is doing. It was a joy to share the gospel. And it created a relationship between two believers that, that just bonded together in Christ through the gospel. Listen, if, you, if you've ever shared the gospel with someone and, and through it God has brought saving grace to that person's life, you know what happens? That person will forever be someone that's just close to your heart. Is that not right? Here's the amazing thought. Let me just see if I can prove it. Every one of you who is saved here this, this morning, every one of you was chosen before the foundations of the world, according to Ephesians 1. Your salvation is 100% a work of God from beginning to end. Yet, every single one of you was saved because God sent someone to share the gospel with you. Now, right now, I just want you to think of who that was. For me, it was my mom. Aren't you thankful for that person? Don't you love that person? The gospel can just bond people together in, in a way that just very few things can. And listen, it's this truth that, that makes sense of Philippians 1 7 through 8, meaning everything up to this point in the sermon was just my introduction. So we're going to make our lunch a dinner, and we're going to be here for a while. <laughs> I'm just tur joking. Turn back to Philippians 1 or 7. Well, it's not fair. They're pumping in smoke and smell into the service. They're fighting against me here. Uh, Philippians 1, verse 7. Again, as you're turning there, in verse 6, it's just clear that, that God gets all the glory for salvation from beginning to end, 100%. But verse 7 teaches us that Paul gets the joy. He gets the joy. Look at verse 7. Paul says this, It is right for me to feel this way about you. Well, well what way, Paul? Well, we've learned joy, gratitude, and love. It was, it was right for Paul to feel joy, gratitude, and love because of Paul's joy-filled remembrance of the, the church at Philippi, verse 3. 
because of Paul's joy-filled partnership with them in, in verses 5 or 4 through 5, because of Paul's joy knowing that, that he who began a good work in them will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 6, Paul, Paul had a joy-filled love for this church that's so apparent in, in these few verses. And it is right, he says, it's right for me to feel this way. In other words, it, it would be morally wrong to feel any other way. The word right in Greek, it, it's the same, uh, the same root as the word righteous. It is right for me to feel this way. Feel is an interesting word in Greek. It actually has more to do with thinking than feeling. It's a mindset. The Greek word literally means to think. It's how the King James translates it. It says this, just, just uh, as it is right for me to think this of you. Paul had a, had a joy-filled mindset. His thoughts when he thought of the church at Philippi were just full of joy, gratitude, and love. Paul says it is right for me to think this way because I hold you in my heart. The heart is the, the, the soul of the person. It's the inner man. Scripture, it's, a, it's the will, desire, and thinking of a person. It's, it's who they, they are. Paul's inner being, he holds them in, in his heart for, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse 7 is, is actually a parallel verse to, to verse 5. Paul, Paul was joy-filled because of the partnership he had in the gospel, the fellowship he had in the gospel. And Paul is letting the church know at this point. He, he kind of switches it around. And he's telling them they should be joy-filled too. Because they, they are all partakers with me, with Paul, of grace. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. It's, it's almost like they're with Paul in Rome in prison. Partakers with Paul in grace. Now I just think it's interesting that Paul uses that word Grace. He uses that word grace, which means a gift. He uses that word often to describe his calling. You know, think about that for a second, for how often Paul was beaten, thrown in prison. He calls it a grace, a gift. Let me just give you a couple examples. Romans 1.5 says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. 1 Corinthians 3.10 says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a, a skilled master building, a, a, I laid a foundation. Ephesians 3.2 says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. Paul saw his ministry as a gift from God, a stewardship of, of God's grace. It wasn't, wasn't that God needed him. He was a steward. It was a privilege. It, it was a, a joy. It was a gift to be used by God in the way that Paul was used. And the Philippian church shared in this gift. He says, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The church, like the church at Philippi, sent Paul money a number of times. In fact, I've told you that this letter was a letter to them thanking them for the money. They said he didn't even ask for the money, and they still sent him money. They prayed for him continually. 
They encouraged him. They, they actually sent someone from their congregation. They sent them to Rome just to serve Paul while he was under house arrest. We'll learn about that later in the letter. I mean, this was a good sending church. They were partakers with him of grace. It meant so much to Paul. He, he said, it's like you're there with me. And one of the reasons I, I'm so passionate about being a good sending church for our cross-cultural workers, I want them to feel like we're there with them. Listen, Paul loved this church. And just think about it for a second. Not only did he plant this church, he went to Philippi, we read about it in Acts 16. He came with the gospel message, shared it, Lydia was saved, and the uh, prison guard was saved, and, and their families, and this church w- was, was planted. Not only did he plant the church and bring the gospel to them, not only, not only did he disciple them, but now they're partnering with him for the sake of the gospel going to the nations. Therefore, Paul just had an affection, a love for this church, that, a love that was hard to put into words, to be honest. And, and Paul does his best in verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says this, for, for God is my witness. Now, that's a strong statement. He's emphasizing what he's about to say, the truth he's about to say. He's calling on God to be a witness. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. How I yearn for you all. The word translated yearn here in Greek just means like a strong desire. He had a a strong desire for you all, every single person within that church. A desire to to be with them. A a desire to to enjoy fellowship with them. He he had a strong desire to to be with them. I I yearn for you all with with the affection. Affection literally means in Greek something like inward parts. It's interesting in, in uh, antiquity and in, in the Hebrew and even the Greek culture. Uh, the heart meant something different than it means today. And uh, the heart was kind of the central person, like I said. It, it has more to do with your thinking. It was thinking, desires, and emotion. It was all those things together. It's who you are. It's what controls your body. It's the soul within you. That, that's the heart, right? In our culture, the heart is like purely emotion. In, in that culture, and this sounds weird, but the gut, right, the intestines, the, the inward parts was the emotion. And, and we kind of get that. We'll say I have a gut feeling, right? But the, the, the inward parts were, were the emotion. And, and therefore, the, this word's a strong word for emotional affection. Meaning in verse 7, Paul, Paul had a, a joy-filled thought, mindset about the Philippian church. When, he, when his thoughts came, when, they, when, he, when he thought about the Philippian church, it was just full of joy. But in verse 8, he had a strong emotional affection when he thought about them. But then Paul ends verse 8 with probably the strongest phrase of all. With the affection of Christ Jesus. To be honest, when I studied that this week, I, I really didn't know what to do with it, what Paul was saying exactly. But then I came across a, a quote from a commentary that I think nails it. And this is J.A. Mortier. He writes this. What a remarkable expression Paul uses. He loves them in the inner being of Christ 
Jesus. Certainly this means that he patterns his love for them on that of Christ, but, but the wording demands something more than the notion of imitation. Paul is saying that he has so advanced in his union with Christ that, that it is as if Christ was, was expressing his love through Paul. The two hearts are, are beating as one. Indeed, one heart, the greater, has taken over the emotional constitution of, of Christ himself has taken possession of his servant, Paul. Meaning Paul loved this church with the heart of Christ. I mean, I just don't think you can make a stronger statement than that. Paul loved this church. And it was this love that brought him joy. It brought him joy. And why did Paul love this church? Paul loved this church because of the gospel. I mean, that's really the whole point of this sermon. It's clear that Paul is saying the gospel has, has bonded us together, Paul and the church together, in a joy-filled love, a joy-filled relationship. Which really makes all of the sacrifices Paul has made for the gospel seem small. Seem small in comparison. And, and again, Jesus' words are proven true. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. If there's anyone that has sacrificed for the gospel, it was Paul. He, he sacrificed everything for the gospel. And, and then Jesus says this, who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecution. Again, this is not a health, wealth, and prosperity sermon here. Paul was in prison for it. But man, did he gain a hundredfold brothers, sisters, mother, children, fathers. The church at Philippi is part of that hundredfold. Paul was blessed by their relationships, brothers and sisters in Christ. They just bonded together because of the gospel and the joy that came out of that. Therefore, once again, let me say this. God doesn't need you to share the gospel. He doesn't need you to share the gospel. We get to share the gospel. And Paul is just a great example of this. Listen, if you want to be joy-filled, if you're struggling with joy, here's just a simple application. Go share the gospel. Follow jo uh, uh, Paul's example. Simply share the gospel or, or, or go disciple someone. Make time to disciple someone. You can't, you can't spend your time doing anything more worthwhile than that, right? I mean, what? sharing the gospel and discipling someone? Or, or if you need to be discipled, find someone that will disciple you. Share the gospel and disciple, and, and listen, the gospel will bond you together with people, and it will produce a joy-filled love. Let's pray.
dear God, our Father, Lord. God, we are, we are a church that, that recognizes what your, your word says, that you are sovereign, that you are in control, Lord, of everything. Every little detail of our lives, Lord, is, is in your hands. And we recognize that, Lord, as a church. And I pray that we live as if that's true. God, but I also pray that we are a church that's known for going out and sharing the gospel. That we're a church that is known, Lord, for, for the value of, of proclaiming the good news of Jesus, the privilege of proclaiming your son's name to a lost city, to a lost culture, Lord. God, help us to see that evangelism isn't, isn't been given to us, this task, Lord, because you need us. Help us to see the great privilege it is, Lord, to disciple and, and to proclaim the good news to those that, that have never heard you. I pray those that, that, that are in our church, Lord, will, will go out throughout to Hatchapi to relatives and, and friends and, and boldly proclaim the gospel, Lord, trusting that there's joy and reward on the other end of that, that proclamation, Lord. I, I also pray that we raise up young ones, Lord, to, to be excited about the gospel, that want to go cross cultures, Lord, and, and share the gospel and share Jesus' name where it's never been spoken before ever, and that they see that as a privilege. Not because you need them, but because they get to go. God, I pray that's the heart of Country Oaks. In your son's name, amen.